You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Exodus, the way out is where we are. Our current teaching series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 19. We'll work from 19 all the way to chapter 20. The Perfect 10 is the title of this weekend's message. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. If you were to summarize the characteristics of a perfect person, perfect family, or a perfect community, what would be on your list? Or maybe here's another way of looking at that question. How would you define the perfect society? No need to do that. God has done that for us by giving us the perfect 10, the 10 commandments. God condensed everything he needed to say to people about how to flourish in life in our relationship with him and others by giving us the 10 commandments. Sad to say, sad to say, but most people in American culture would be hard-pressed to tell you what is on the list, let alone the purposes for the list, and frankly, don't care. That's our culture we live in. So I know you guys care. That's why you're here. But let me put you on the spot. I want you to turn to the people next to you and see if you can come up with one or two on God's top 10 list, that is the 10 commandments list, come up with at least two, and then come up with what are his purposes for giving us this list. There's multiple purposes. We're gonna look at that this morning, but do that real quick, would you? Turn to the person next to you. So did I, did I stump you a little bit? I, you know, when I started saying that, you guys were really kind of in deep thought. It's like, whoa, can I even come up with anything on that list? It's like, oh, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to look at that list here this morning. We're also going to look at the purposes of that list. And we're going to talk about how uh, really three primary perspectives about that list. That's what we'll start with and then kind of work through the list and do all that. But before we do that, let's pray. Once again, let's ask for God's help as we study his word and uh, take a look at these notes. God, we're delighted to be here today. We love your presence. Psalm 1 teaches us, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in your law and he meditates on it day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf will not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. That's what we want for our lives. So teach us your law and the purposes of it so that we can saturate our lives with it and be completely transformed by it. In your son's beautiful name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. So first of all, take a look at your notes. Let me give you a couple fill-in-the-blanks before we actually read the text. Three primary perspectives when it comes to the law. The first one is moralism. Your fill-in-the-blank there is legalism. Legalism. It goes like this. I obey, therefore God accepts me. By the way, these three perspectives are being taught here in America today. You're going to find churches that will represent or reflect each one of those or, or uh, a group of these three. Uh, but the first one, moralism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you must obey or he won't love you. Law is primary and love is secondary. His blessings are conditional. That's what, that's what moralism is about. Some of you were raised in that kind of an environment of moralism. Now, the next one is antinomianism. How many are familiar with that term, antinomianism? Show of hands, okay. More hands should be in the air because I've taught that to you, so this is a good reminder for you. Okay, oh, oh, yeah. I'll raise my hand now. But uh, no, antinomianism means anti-law, anti-law, and it's liberalism. It, it, in fact, American culture, American culture, uh, churches are headed in that direction predominantly. And this is what it says, God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. Yes, you should obey, but in the end, God loves everybody and will accept everybody. Love is primary and law is secondary. His blessings are unconditional. That's, that's being taught. So moralism is saying that his blessings are conditional. Antinomianism or liberalism is saying his blessings are unconditional. And actually, this is 
the Bible is the gospel. It's the, the fill in the blank there is liberty. This is where real freedom is found. And this is what it, uh, what it is. God accepts me in Christ. God accepts me in Christ. Therefore, I want to obey and there's a major difference between the three. So, so God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. So here's my question for you. Are his blessings conditional or unconditional? That's a, that's a good question, isn't it? Are they conditional? That is, are they, are they based on legalism where they say they're conditional or unconditional liberalism? And the answer to that question is yes. You guys, were you guys tracking with me there? So yes, why? Listen to me. This is why the gospel is so breathtaking. Because on the cross, why is that true? Because on the cross, Jesus completely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you completely, unconditionally. Do you understand that? I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And so this leads to a paradoxical obedience. I take sin seriously, I avoid it like crazy because it's very destructive and it is why Jesus died. But if or when I do sin, I don't fall into condemnation or despair because it is why Jesus died. And I run right back into his arms. I repent and believe in him. I look to him. But I don't do those things because I'm saved. I'm saved, therefore I do those things. I, I respond, I reciprocate in love to him. Now, many believe erroneously that the Old Testament is all about the law and the New Testament is, is all about love. That's not true. I want to show you in our text, we're reading out of the Old Testament book of Exodus, in our text that the Old Testament is all about law and love as much as the New Testament is. And so if you have your Bibles Open up to chapter 19 is where we are currently in our study through the book of Exodus. And I want you to hear this. So they're headed towards the promised land. And as, you, as you've seen in the previous chapters, there's been a little bit of grumbling going on. And God has met their needs. And then chapter, uh, chapter 18, we talked about leadership, Jethro's advice to Moses, and now we head into our story, chapter 19, verse 1, and on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there, Israel encamped before the mountain, this is the mountain of God, this is Mount Sinai, and so while Moses went up to God, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Now, these next two verses are breathtaking. They're absolutely beautiful. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen. So he's supposed to say this to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What beautiful language. Now, when you think of an eagle soaring in the sky, it's breathtakingly beautiful. It really speaks of perspective and power and and freedom. And that's what he's saying. I did that for you. I redeemed you. I set you free. I rescued you. I brought you to myself, to intimacy with me, to have a relationship with me. Now, notice how he wants them now to respond. That's all true. That's, that's covenant love. Notice how he wants them to respond. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Those are tender words. Those are beautiful words. And so in the Old Testament, it's showing us, first of all, he pursues us. He loves us. He redeems us. He brings us into relationship with him. And then out of that, then we are to do what? We are to obey him and follow him and put him at the center of our lives. See, that's the gospel message. It's in the Old Testament. It's throughout the Bible. And then uh, 
verse seven, so, so Israel accepts the covenant here in verse seven and eight. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter is them just uh, sanctifying themselves, getting them ready to hear the Ten Commandments and for God to speak to them and what, what, he's, what his expectations are of them as a result of him rescuing them. And then chapter 20, verse 1. We'll continue reading. And God spoke all these words saying, and notice this, he reiterates it once again. He says it just just to remind you, just before he gives us the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, and I can't overemphasize that because we're so, the default mode of our hearts is moralism. If I obey, then God blesses me. No, 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 no. God has blessed you beyond your wildest dreams. And then therefore you respond to that. You just, you're just responding to what you already have in him. That's, that's the point of this. That's why he says it again here. Now we're gonna go through the 10 commandments and he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment one. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Stop there just for a minute. That word jealousy isn't what you might think, okay? You know how we get jealous? It's very selfish and self-centered. His isn't selfish jealousy. He has our best interest at heart. He wants the best for you. That's what it means. That's his jealousy for you. And so when we begin to put anything at the center of our lives other than God, he's jealous for, for us because he knows it's going to wreck us, it's going to ruin us, it's going to devastate us. That's his jealousy. Oh my goodness, it's, it's amazing love for us. And so I, I needed to say that. I didn't have it in my notes or anything there, but I just, it, as it popped off the page, I'm thinking jealous. A lot of times we get this weird idea of jealousy and it's just, this is such a healthy jealousy. He just, he, he has your best interest at heart. No one has ever loved you more. And uh, then verse 6, he says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all the work but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in uh, that is your neighbor's. And then the rest, verses 18 through 21, you see the response of Israel is fear. So when you look at yourself in the full-length mirror of God's law, the natural response would be fear. And this encounter with God, it's like, oh my goodness, I don't even come close to that. I, I said that I would obey all that you say, but right now I fall really short of that. And then the last part of this chapter, uh, verses 22 through 26, he talks about, he gives provision for them approaching God through sacrifice, which is ultimately pointing to Jesus. And so this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
so let's talk about this. What, what are the purposes, what are the reasons uh, for the perfect 10, four purposes for the perfect 10 or the 10 commandments? Here's the first one on your notes, to invite us into intimacy with God as his treasured possession. So we've already settled the whole thing that the gospel is that, that God accepts me in Christ Jesus, therefore I obey. So that's what we're talking about here as we work through the purposes. And so Exodus 19, four and five, once again, I wanna reread those verses. Those are beautiful words. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. I know, I know there's still probably confusion with some of you like, well, how do those Old Testament people get saved? Because they don't have Jesus. Well, well, they look ahead, and we look back. They look ahead to the cross. We look back to the cross. And uh, the father of our faith, who's the father of our faith? Abraham. And it tells us in the 15th chapter that it was by his faith in God. He didn't understand all the implications of God's saving grace, but and how God was going to pull it off, what he was going to do. But God put, but Abraham put his faith in God, and God considered it justification and righteousness in that 15th chapter of, uh, of Genesis. And then if you want to read more about it, uh, Paul unpacks it for us in the fourth chapter of Romans. Oh, and if you even want more, go to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, the faith chapter, because it talks about all these Old Testament characters that, that had God in their life, that knew God by faith. So it's by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. They looked ahead, we looked back. Okay, you guys got that? You need to know that. People are confused oftentimes when they look back and forth between the Old and New Testament. They think the Old Testament is law, New Testament is love. No, no, no. It's all the same book. One's looking ahead, the other one looks back. And it's all by grace through faith in Christ. And what that does is that when we put our faith in Christ, it makes us his treasured possession. Did you notice verse five? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. Now, we need to look at that word. This is a beautiful word. I would encourage you to take that word and meditate on it and think about the implications of that and how it applies to our lives. Treasured possession is the private, it's the private wealth of a great king. Absolute monarchs or kings, in one sense, owned everything. They owned buildings and property and roads and people. But in another sense, this word means special objects of beauty and value that were his own personal possessions that he delighted in and took special care of. So if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, then he takes delight in you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You know the words that were spoken to Christ, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Those are our words for us because we get Christ's righteousness, he got our sinfulness. That's the great exchange that took place. That's the gospel message. And so treasured possession. So this is what should be going over in your mind each and every day. He delights in me. He, he loves me. In fact, those would be really great words. Those are true words based on the authority of God's word, based on the personal work of Jesus Christ. You delight in me? I'm a mess. Yes, you are, but I delight in you because of what Jesus has done, and I'm working in your life, and I'm drawing you closer to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to do that work. So he delights in me, and he takes special care of me because I'm his treasured possession. Those words alone would be enough for you to be able to face anything in life. But you don't believe it, actually. We, we don't. We struggle. That's part of your sin. And you typically will substitute that for other things in life, and that's what we're going to get to here in our study. And so gospel liberty here is that God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. And so the purpose of the law is not to get God to love you, to bless you, to get you to heaven. Did you, you know that. It's not the law. Because if you ask most Americans, they'd say, well, if I'm a good person, you know, if, if you were to ask them if they're going to go to heaven, most would say, yeah, they are. And you'd say, why? And they'd say, because I'm basically a good person. And, and you, then you'd have to say, well, you haven't read the Bible lately, have you? And, uh, and you really don't really understand what the Bible actually has to say about all of that because it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big book and it's an important book. And so the Bible says you can't do that. So the purpose of the law is not to get, get God to love you, bless you, and get you to heaven. 
And what God is saying through this is that I love you, I've rescued you, I'm committed to you, but I want you to reciprocate. That's what he's saying. That's throughout the Bible. 1 John uh, 4.19, it says, we love him because why? He first loved us. Preemptive love, rest in his loves. So when I find myself not living in his love and I'm not loving others, what do I go back to? Do I try harder? Do I try to beat myself up and go, man, why am I not... Why am I not more loving? Come on, Davis, get your act together. What's wrong with you? Do I do that? Well, sometimes, yeah, you're right. Sometimes I do that because I default towards moralism. But then when I get, you know, finally when I come to my sense, I go, wait, 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 wait. He already loves me. I need to go back to his love. I'm not living in the reality of his love. I need to go back to that. I need to experience that. That's why he tells us, Jesus summarized all the Ten Commandments and two commands. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All he's saying is reciprocate my love that I've already poured into your life. Oh, by the way, if you love him, if you love him, he loved you first. That's the only reason why you love him is because if you have even the slightest little bit of desire for him, it's because he's coming after you. He loves you. He's pursuing you because you can't love him on your own. That's a work of his spirit in your life. That's that's a work of his Holy Spirit drawing you, rescuing you, redeeming you. So if you're even stirred up in the slightest bit to want to love him, it's because he loves you first. And he's just asking you. He's inviting you. He's saying reciprocate my love. Respond to my love. And uh, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, you guys know this. When you fall in love with somebody, you do research. You look to see if they've got a criminal record. (laughs) No, you don't do that. But maybe that's not a bad idea, okay? That's not a bad idea. But no, what I'm talking about here is that you... You look to see what they like and they dislike, okay? After you've got past the whole criminal record thing, they, they, look, they look pretty decent. And, um, and so you look to see what they like and dislike. What pleases that person? What delights that person? In real love, you place your happiness and joy into the happiness and joy of the other. Because if you were to ask me, hey, what, what's Nancy's favorite color? Or what is, what's her favorite coffee beverage? What's her, I can tell you. You want to know? I mean, I, I know those things because I know, because I've, I've learned her likes and dislikes. And that's what you do. That's what he's doing with the Ten Commandments. I love you. I've pursued you. I want you to be in relationship with me. This is what it looks like. And so the Ten Commandments are not just arbitrary rules. The Ten Commandments are not only God's very nature. They're not only showing us God's very nature, but they're also consistent with how God created us and therefore how we can flourish in life. In God's perfect love, infinite wisdom, knowing how he created us, knowing our weaknesses and strengths, he's saying, this is the best way to live. You want to see the perfect person, the perfect family, the perfect society? This is a great way to live. That's what he's saying. And so to violate the 10 is not only to trample on God's nature, but also his love and wisdom for us. He's just saying, hey, this is what intimacy with me looks like. And by the way, this is my favorite part of, uh, of the Christian life is intimacy with God. That, that's the best thing that we have in our relationship with God, intimacy with God. Nothing will liberate your life, satisfy your soul, fortify your faith like being the treasured possession of the king of the universe. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. I don't care what you're chasing after or pursuing or whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy. It will not even come close to what is found in an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. And if you think otherwise, it's because you're being duped and deceived by our culture, by your sinful nature, by the, by the world's values, and also by our adversary that's dogging us and coming after us. Okay, that's the first one. Let's keep going. Here's the next one, number two, to create a God-glorifying countercultural community. So out of this intimacy, he so transforms our lives. He wants us to create a God-glorifying countercultural community. Verse 6, he says, a kingdom of priests. So this is chapter 19. So chapter 19 that precedes chapter 20, which 20 is the Ten Commandments. So he's now talking. He's saying, this is what I want for you. This is what I have for you. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Kingdom of priest, what in the world does that mean? He wants us to be a kingdom of priest. That means really a priest is a mediator who shows people what God is like. That's a priest. What about a holy nation? Holy nation would mean a separate and distinct totally different society of people. So let's put those two together because that's what he's doing here. So this is a a totally different society of people who put on display what God is like. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's called us to do. Now, there's a lot of verses that talk about that. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, it says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I used to read that kind of thinking, uh, applying it personally, but it's, it's actually meant to be applied corporately, not just individually but, uh, and singularly, but plurally to all of us. The trouble with the English language is that the second person singular and plural are the same. So when it says you, uh, it actually means you all. <laughs> you all are the salt of the earth and you all are the light of the world. And so the trouble with the English language is that the, uh, the second person singular and plural are the same unless you're from Texas or somewhere in the south. And, uh, and Texans would use, that's how they would say it. Y'all, they would understand that. Y'all, you can't understand them anyway. But uh, anybody from Texas? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> They're great people. Actually, I've got, my wife's got a lot of relatives from Texas, and I give her a bad time about that. Uh, I could tell you this. Let me tell you this story real quick, okay? So when I was, in my, when I was 20 years old, I had went through Phoenix uh, School of Welding here, and I couldn't get a job. It was back in the 70s, and so I went over there to work on one of the refineries and went through some of their small towns, stopped at some of their restaurants. I could not understand a thing those gals were saying to me when they came and waited on the table, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, would you slow your conversation down a little bit and talk English? But uh, I don't know why I said that because it goes totally off of what I was saying here. But <laughs> you all, you all are the salt of the earth. You all the light of the world. It's all of us together. I got to keep rolling here, don't I? Okay, so 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, that's beautiful. I love those words. The excellencies of him. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I had a guy that uh, caught me in the foyer here uh, a few weeks back, and I said, hey, how are you doing? He goes, ah, not very good. I go, oh, man, I'm sorry. What's going on? He says, you know what? And he's a mechanic. He goes, doing work for Christians, it's horrible. <laughs> I go, I go, you're telling me. <laughs> I go, we got a whole church filled with him right here. And that's why I'm needing to go on a sabbatical. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't even say that. Please forgive me. Okay. <laughs> I just took that conversation to a place and it didn't even go. Okay. But anyway... I started to say, well, tell me a little bit more about it. I says, yeah, man, I've, I've done work for Christians, and they're a pain in the you-know-what. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he kind of ranted a little bit and went off, and, and I just walked away. He says, yeah, I'll, I'll be praying for you on that one. And, uh, and I said, I don't ever want to talk to him again. But uh, <laughs> no, I didn't say that either. But later on, at the end of the service, I think he felt a little convicted. He says, I just need to tell you that not all Christians are that way. I go, whew, <laughs> I was really nervous there for a minute, but I knew what you meant. I knew you were kind of, uh, kind of broad brushing a bit and all that, but that shouldn't be the case. I mean, that should never, ever be the case when someone says, oh, I hate doing work for Christians. What? You have got to be kidding me. There is no reason for that to ever happen. When he talks about the kind of people that we should be, Christians should be the best people to do business with. And, and I understand maybe if I talked with him a little bit more, maybe, maybe they aren't Christians, they claim to be Christians and they're not really Christians, or there's a lack of communication with the expectations. But, but let me ask you this question. What do you think is the general reputation of Christians in America today? Do you think it's bad, good, ugly? It's, it's probably, probably not good at all, is it? 
And that's totally contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. There's something going, going wrong when it comes to that. In fact, my wife worked for a cabinet company, and she said that the guy was a Christian. And anytime he interviewed someone and they said that they were Christian, he would almost cringe, almost kind of like, I don't even know if I want to hire him. And, and, you know, as I was thinking about this, Christians should be people that have the best work ethic, the most character, integrity, honesty, love. Now, that doesn't mean that I, I put tolerance here because tolerance, I'm not talking about tolerance doesn't mean that we don't ever disagree with anyone. We're going to disagree. Oh, my goodness. We're going to disagree with a lot of people. But it means how do we treat people who disagree with us? How do we relate to people who disagree? There's going to be a lot of people that are going to disagree with us. In fact, they're going to despise us. The Bible says that. They're going to hate us. So how are you going to respond? You're going to overcome evil with good? Or, or are you going to become like the evil that's being done to you? And the Bible says, no, no, no. If, you're, if you know that you're my treasured possession, it's going to transform your life. And you're going to want to live according to the standard that I've established for you. And it's a, yeah, it's a supernatural work that I'm going to do in your life. I mean, think about this. We serve a man who died for his enemies. He blessed those that were cursing him to his death. And in fact, back during our Luke series, chapter 6, we went through a number of characteristics that should mark Christians, and the one that stood out to me, the mark of a Christian should be, more than anything, the supernatural capacity to love your enemies. And so what, what should happen that when you interact with people and you, and you disagree and you're kind of working through the, the, uh, the disagreements, whatever, the conflict, and you're working through conflict resolution, whatever, what they should be able to say about you when they walk away is say, you know what, I don't agree with them. I think it's wrong. They could say that. They could say any number of things. And yet, I cannot deny the fact that they love me. That there should be such a melt-in-your-mouth sweetness in how you interact with people that they, they recognize, hey, we disagree, and yet they cannot deny the fact that you love them. You'd be willing to take a bullet for them. I think that can only happen when you really live in the reality of the fact that you're his treasured possession and that he loves you with that kind of love. New City Catechism 48, we read it here today. Let me read it again. What is the church? God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. You know what that word prefigure means? That word prefigure and prefigure Christ's kingdom, prefigure Christ's kingdom. Give those folks a taste of heaven on earth. Show them what God's future kingdom is going to look like when he comes back to this earth and sets up his kingdom because it's going to be glorious. And so give them a, a glimpse of that through your interaction with one another and with them. That's what he's saying. So that they will long for his coming. That they'll go, wow, is that what it's going to be like? Oh my goodness, I want to know this Savior. I want, I want him to come back and set up his kingdom because this place is a mess. That, that, that's what he's saying. That we would live in such a way that people would say, hire a Christian? Absolutely. Send more Christians. I want them here because they're the hardest workers. They're people of character and integrity and love. We don't always agree, but boy, do they love people. See, and that's, that's what he's getting at here. I did another teaching here back during our Luke series, Certainty in a World of Doubt. That was the subtitle of that series. And it was December the 2nd and 3rd of 2017, this last year. We looked at Luke 23, verses 1 through 25, and it was Jesus and politics. And I gave you the quote Rodney Starks from his book. He was a historian, sociologist, from his book, The Rise of Christianity. And he said, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? And then he goes through a list of four primary items as he did the research in that first century. First one was relational inclusivity 
and intimacy created a culture of conversion and discipleship. So relational inclusivity and intimacy, and then radical generosity, caring for the sick, widows, orphans, instead of fleeing to the countryside to escape the all too frequent calamities of their day. And then there was moral integrity. They stood against adultery and abortion and infanticide, the killing of infants. And then the, the last one was a theology of love. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And he just said, that's what, ultimately turned the Roman world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, and so why, why, does, uh, why these four, four purposes? Well, the first one is to invite us into intimacy with God as his treasured possession. The second one is to create a God-glorifying countercultural community. Here's the third one. Now, if you are not convicted, you will be at the end of this one because it's to reveal the inner workings of your heart, to reveal the inner workings of your heart. That's the purpose of God's law, is to expose all of that that's inside of our heart. So Exodus 21 through 17, Proverbs 4:23. it says, above all else, guard your what? Heart. Your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We are what we love. That's why he says, guard your heart. What is it that you love? It's gonna shape your life. It's gonna, that's gonna take a hold of your life. Uh, James 2.10, I used to struggle with this because it would say, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I don't like that. Is that okay for me to say that? Yeah, I just like, don't like that. I said, hey, you know what? I think I'm doing pretty good. I hit nine out of 10. That's like 90%. In most college courses, that's, that's, that's like an A, okay? That's an A in my book, but in God's book, it's like, no, nah, you failed. So what is up with that? Because all sin, all sin is uh, basically treason against the highest court of the universe. And we don't really understand sin and the weightiness of sin. And not only that, he's also showing us that all sin has this connectedness. And let me give you the connectedness with sin, and you're going to begin to see why that verse is, is so significant, so important. Here's the first one. The vertical is connected to the horizontal when you look at the Ten Commandments. So the first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with the vertical, our relationship with God. The next six have to do with our relationship with one another. And so there's a connection here. And in fact, it tells us in 1 John 4, 7 through 21, if anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he's just shooting straight with us. And so here's the deal with this is that his, what, it, what it's saying in, in your understanding of the law is that the first four precede the next six and they're connected and that when there's something wrong with the five through 10, that six is because there's something wrong with the one through four. That's what he's saying. If you say, hey, I love God, but then you hate someone, he's saying, you're a liar. You don't love God. You don't even know what love is. I just, that's my summary of that because if you read through that, it's pretty profound, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. So what he's saying in all of that is that his forgiveness and love for you is best seen in your forgiveness and love of others. If you don't forgive and love others, it's because you don't understand his forgiveness and love for you. You don't understand that. You're not living in the reality of it because it can be best seen horizontally. And if you've got a problem horizontally, if you've got a problem with your marriage, if you've got a problem with your kids, if you've got a problem with your job, if you've got a problem with your finances, whatever it might be, it always goes back to the vertical. The problem is the vertical. There's something that's disconnected in the vertical. That's how they're connected. That's why he's saying, hey, if you violate the law in one place, you've violated the whole thing because they're all connected. Here's the next one. The internal is connected to the external. So not only is he not just dealing with, he's not just dealing with our behavior. Behavior is just symptomatic of heart issue. This is what, and Jesus made this clear. And so the internal, the head and the heart is connected to the external, the hand. Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he said, you shall not murder, but whoever is angry with his brother has murdered him in his heart. I mean, didn't he say that? How about this one? You shall not commit adultery, but everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he was addressing an issue where, uh, in that day where people were saying, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I'm a good person. Wait, wait. It goes to the heart. It's, it's what's in your heart that matters most. 
That's just a manifestation of, of what has already been in your heart. See, we fall in private before we ever fall in public. It always, it always starts in the heart. That's the reason why I said, above all else, guard your heart, 423 of Proverbs, because it is the wellspring of life. That's why I quoted that, because, because it starts in the heart. What is it that you love? What are the loves of your life? What's going on in your heart? Sin is a matter of the heart before it is ever a matter of our behavior. Luke 6, 43 through 45, you can read that too as you're kind of going through the growing notes this next week because what that is saying, let me give you a summary statement. The roots of our faith produce the fruit of our life. If you don't like the fruit of your life, you gotta go to the roots of your faith. It's your beliefs that determine your behavior. If you don't like how you're behaving and responding and feeling about life circumstances, you gotta get back to your beliefs. Better yet, you gotta get back to what you worship. How do you change your behavior? You must change your beliefs. Better yet, you better change what you worship. Your heart is at the heart of the problem. People, things, and circumstances don't cause you to sin. They're where the sin of your heart gets revealed. Ask a little boy why he hit his sister. He won't tell you it's because of the sin that is in his heart, mommy. He won't say that, or daddy. Because there's sin in my heart and I need a really good spanking right now, okay? I need discipline or, or whatever. You know, I need some discipline. He's not going to say that. No, he'll say, because she took my toy and I wanted it. Or because she bothers me. Ask a father why he is so angry all the time. He won't tell you it's because of the selfishness and impatience in his heart. No, he'll say it's because of his stressful job or nagging wife or rebellious kid. They just drive me crazy. That's what he'll say. Ask a single person why they are so moody and discontent. She won't say it's because of the jealousy that resides in her heart. She'll point to all the ways that life has been unfair. See, your biggest problem isn't outside of you, but it's inside of you. Jesus made that really clear, and the law helps to reveal that. Here's the next one. This really even gets to the heart of our problems. The first commandment is connected to the second through the tenth commandments. So all of the commandments go back to the first commandment. You violate two through 10 in direct proportion to how you have already violated the first commandment. I'm gonna give you that here. So Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. So did you notice there's not a third option? There's just two options, okay? You got two options. You're only gonna, you'll either worship the, the one true living God or you'll have a counterfeit God, a pseudo savior. There's not like a third option where he says, well, I choose not to have a God today. I'm just going to do my own thing. Oh, you've become your own God, okay, in doing that. But no, no, you're going to have a God. You were created to have God at the center of your life, the eternal God, the, the God of the Bible at the center of your life. But when you say, no, I don't want him at the center of my life, guess what? You have another God that slides in there. You're going to have a God. Everybody has a God. Even atheists are serving somebody or something because that's how God created us. And so think about this, what, what are the, the things in your life, or the gods, the pseudo-saviors, little g-gods, that compete for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? When you begin to uncover that and understand that, you're beginning to under, understand more clearly the battle that's going on for your heart. When the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, that's what he's talking about there. Would I be able to come to you and ask you, what are, the, what are the gods of your life? I can tell you my wife's gods. In fact, let me go ahead and list them right here in front of all of you. You guys ready? Go ahead and start writing them down. Because there's, so, there's a lot, okay? There is so many, I'm overwhelmed by all of her gods. And I'm not one of them. That's the sad thing about it. Actually, uh, she's, she's got a list. I've got a list. Everyone has a list. Our hearts are idle factories, and you need to know where that battle is. 
And so behind every negative emotion and bad behavior is idolatry. 1 John 5.21 is an interesting book. It's a, really a great book because it talks about fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. It talks about intimacy with God, intimacy with one another. It talks about sin and working through all those things. And you go completely through the five chapters of that book and then, the, then it ends like this. It's almost kind of a, it's a crazy ending because it ends like this by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Boom, drops the mic, it's over. It's like, what? What happened? He didn't even talk about idolatry throughout the whole book. Why? Because fundamentally that's where all of our problems are. It's in idolatry. Idolatry. Any negative emotions or bad behavior that you seem to not be able to overcome is because of idolatry. Idolatry is trusting and treasuring something more than God. See, this is the sin under every sin. Idolatry is the underlying factor in everything. Let me give you a list here. Let me just show you. Let me help you, okay? Let me make you feel really bad, okay? So codependence, we all struggle with it, greater or lesser degree. People-pleasing, do you, do you struggle with over-need to please, inability to take criticism, afraid to confront, easily hurt feelings, tend to overcommit? What are you doing there? Codependent people, people-pleasing people, you are worshiping the God of human approval. You're not living in the reality of the fact that you are his treasured possession and then you have all the approval that you need in God you're trying to get it from people how about uh, that, that would obviously lead to also in some and I've seen this a cycle of bad or exploitive or abusive relationships what about someone that finds themselves in the cycle of bad relationships you are worshiping the God of male or female affection what about workaholism you are worshiping the God of money status achievement or approval how about eating disorder or, or excessive exercise? Excessive exercise. Let me see if anybody excessively exercises here. <laughs> nope, not here. I'm kidding. Some of you might. I know. You can do that too, but that's all part of that. What is that, what is that the God of? You are worshiping the God of body image. If I look like that, I'll be a worthwhile person. Stingy with money. You're worshiping the God of money for either security or significance. Money is either your security, you're going to save it, you're going to hoard it, or it's going to be your significance. You're going to spend it on the things that make you feel better about yourself. How about this? I put a couple parenting in here too because I thought that would be helpful. Uh, oh, no, let's, let's do another one. Let's talk about drug, alcohol, porn, food, and shopping addiction. Okay, that would be a good one to talk about. What God are you serving there or worshiping? The God of escape, comfort, pleasure, to cover your feelings of shame and or to avoid the hardness of life. Now let's get to the parenting part, okay? Parenting, controlling parent. If you're a controlling parent, you're going to be high with rules and low in relationship. That's a controlling parent. Does that make sense? So high rules, low relationship. You're worshiping the God of the perfect family or children. You have a misplaced identity in your children's performance. What this is going to do is that your children can become resentful over time and have no self of their own. And at worst, the controlling parent may abuse them when displeased by them. And it's all rooted in idolatry. Here's another one. Here's the permissive parent. They have low rules and high relationship. Low, low on, uh, on limits, high on love. You are worshiping the God of, I just want my kids to like me, or I just want my kids to be happy, and kids will grow up with no direction or self-control or unprepared to handle the difficulties of life. So what's the common denominator on all those? I, I, I cut the list short there, okay? For my sake and your sake. And the common denominator here is Romans 1.25. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. That's what we do. And we're all guilty of it. Whatever you love more than Christ, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. Whatever you love more than Christ will control you when you seek it, disappoint you when you get it, devastate you when you lose it. Idolatry, pathologically, intensifies normal emotions and makes them inconsolable and debilitating and devastating. Behind every negative emotion and bad behavior is idolatry. 
Sin arises because we desire something more than we desire God. That's why he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how desirable and how satisfying he is, and we substitute God for something else. And it can be a very good thing that turns into a God thing. Overcoming sin begins by reversing this process, desiring God more than anything else. And so we are changed by faith as we look upon the glory of God and find him so much more desirable and satisfying than anything that sin can offer. The desire for God overcomes the desire for sin. That's how we overcome sin. When I begin to see the the negative emotions, when I see my behavior and I find myself responding in a way that's inappropriate, not according to God's standards, I can say, wait a minute, what's going on? What has captured my heart more so than God? And you run into his arms and you let him rescue you. You let him redeem you. You let him love you. So that takes us to the last point, to show us our desperate need for Jesus, our Savior. That's, That's the purpose of the law, just so that we can say, hey, you know what? I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Exodus 20, 18 through 21, their response was fear. Exodus 20, 22 through 25, God provides a way to approach him all pointing to Jesus. Listen to these uh, verses, Romans 3, 20 through 24. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, that is the right standing with God, has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from the law and the prophets, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Praise God for that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, his treasured possession. Through Jesus Christ, you are his treasured possession. He loves you. He adores you. That's what I would encourage you to think about and meditate on and live in the reality of because that's what will change everything about you. Make him the object of your worship. Find your deepest delight in him. Be swept away by his love. Let him daily sweep you up into his arms of love. And I mean, intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. And when you do that, 1 John 5, 3 will be true about you. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John Newton, John Newton put it this way. He wrote Amazing Grace. Listen to this. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. See, we thought chasing all the stuff in this world was going to make us happy, but no, it's pursuing him, seeking him, and we want to obey him with all of our heart, and so we're only responding to his preemptive love towards us. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. William Cooper put it this way, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So here's how we're going to end the service. I'm going to invite these guys out. They're going to lead us in that song that he taught us. It's a beautiful song. Absolutely beautiful song. And uh, would you stand with us as we sing this song? We conclude our time together. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let this song be your prayer as we conclude our time together. Love you guys.